1: Not because it's cool, not because it's trendy, but because it's necessary if you want to stay tethered to reality in times such as the ones we live in. So, with that said, let's dive right in. Quick shout out to my sponsors. They include College.org, LifesavingFood.com, Burelli.com, TMCPNation.com, and ClimbingUpward.com. By the way, uh, John Pulver from Climbing Upward will be joining me tomorrow on the show just in case you want to put that on your calendar. So I've been thinking about this uh, lately, and I, I know I'm not the only one who is is feeling discouragement, or at least uh, I'm, I'm feeling the weight of the situation before us. So I don't want to make it sound like, okay, so first of all, I just want to talk about what a bummer everything is. I'm only acknowledging that uh, I think all of us are, are doing the best we can to, you know, Keep a stiff upper lip, pip, pip, and all that. You know, keep a, a a good, cheery disposition, but it's not easy. And I came across this commentary last night on Twitter. This is a poster, Texan Jack, Jack Cameron. And uh, this guy's writing is, it's really exceptional. Now, you know, some people may not, uh, they may not really, you know, appreciate all of his messages, but that's, you know, this is true with pretty much any writer, especially somebody who puts themselves out there. But his thoughts on how you deal with the negativity, the, 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 the temptation to give in to despair, I thought this was extremely relevant. He starts with a quote from the wisdom of Ben Sirah. Do not abandon yourself to sorrow or torment yourself by brooding. And Jack says despair is a grave danger today. Social media serves up to all of us a ceaseless buffet of horror, violence, cruelty, and death, and we consume it with an insatiable appetite. But listen to this. He says, in the end, that's our fault. He says, I've seen it myself. The more black pilling a post I put up... By the way, if you're not familiar with the term black pill, you know, red pill, blue pill, if you take the red pill, you know, you wake up from this. If you take the blue pill, you go back to sleep, still in the Matrix, still comfortable in your delusions. The black pill is when you consume so much of what's going on and there's so much reality that sets in that basically you just say, I give up. Okay? So the goal here is never to black pill yourself or to allow yourself to be black pilled into where you just finally throw your hands in the air and say, I can't take it. But Jack says, the more black pilling a post I put up, the bigger the response. You understand what he's saying? People like it. He says, that's why I constantly write short stories to try to add some wholesome posts into the mix. But he says, you don't respond to them nearly as much, but I know I've lifted a few spirits rather than crushed them further. And that's the thing about despair. Unlike depression, which is a mental condition, despair is generally a voluntary act of self-harm. We don't succumb to despair. We surrender to it. It wants to claim us, but if we refuse to open our arms to greet it, well, we can keep it at bay. He says, humans aren't nearly the two-dimensional beings our globalist overlords would like to think. They won't turn us into consumer producer bots quite so easily. And while, yes, we certainly love pleasure, there's also a distinct allure to pain that we can't quite bring ourselves to separate from, not all the way. Now, listen to what he uses as an example here. He says, remember that first heartbreak? Remember how it felt knowing that he or she wasn't going to call, no matter how much you willed him or her to? No matter how much you ached deep in your chest and not perpetually at your throat? You probably hated it at the time, do you still? Thinking back, wasn't there a keenness to it that the years have dulled? Wasn't there a kind of sweetness to that melancholy? People who carry their pain around with them are easily recognizable. Just hold your hand up to conceal the smiling mouth, and it will be there, lingering in the eyes. He says, I've seen it in some of you, though I won't dare broach it with you. I'm always here to talk if you want, though. We see the darkness around us, innocence destroyed, churches failing, institutions being corrupted, people giving in to the worst of impulses, seemingly with any fight whatsoever. We're tempted to just give up on everything, grab a jar of black pills and chug them down. So we do what we shouldn't, We jump on Twitter. Yep, another gang of young black men beating an old white woman to death for $10. Or more politicians being caught out in lies, bribes, sexual misconduct, etc. And hey, look at that. No repercussions. They just moonwalk into the next crime or lucrative job paid for by your taxes. Bill Gates warning of the next great pandemic. An Ebola variant this time. But hey, it's okay. We'll have a vaccine ready for you to buy in a few months. Testing? Yeah, we did some of that. But in this new age... You don't want to be part of the problem, do you? You like your job, right? American soldiers killed in some country you had no idea was even in a conflict. Why are we there? Why did a 19-year-old girl from Alabama need to die there, choking to death on her own blood, praying to Jesus and calling for her mama? Nobody's sure, but just do your job, pay your taxes, and keep voting. Keep voting like a slot machine. Hey, one day, you're bound to win. By the way, another baby was found dead in a car from heat exhaustion because mom got caught up at a 48-hour rave party. Stay tuned for details. Got to get those details. Now, he says, if this stuff isn't making you miserable, there's something profoundly wrong with you. But here's his point. We keep coming back. It is a choice. We can come back, but he says it needs to be for the right reasons. We need to try to make an effort to let in some light to dissipate the gloom. Any of us can do it. You ever drive along the highway and see someone trying to merge, but traffic's too banked up and no one will let them in? Everybody has somewhere to be, or somewhere to be where they're going as soon as possible. They can't lose 10 seconds. Those 10 seconds are vital. And he says, I used to drive like that, but then one day I just stopped. And the first thing I noticed when I started giving way, pulling over so the guy behind me in a hurry could get past, or letting the old lady merge, was that very frequently as I followed them, I saw them do the exact same thing or something similar for someone else. The guy I'd slowed down to allow him to make a turn allowed the old guy in the truck to get past him. The lady who I'd thanked with a thumbs up and a waving my hand out the window let another guy in. She didn't have to, she wanted to. They liked the feeling I gave them by a deliberate act of kindness. Some didn't, some didn't care. You always get those people. But remember, on the day your mother died or your best friend argued with you or your wife told you you weren't doing the damn dishes the right way again, that was probably you. Despair has its emotional counterweight in warmth, kindness, and patience. And he says those things, when we receive them from those we love and respect, are what we really live for. Despair is more like a guilty indulgence, and like video games, it's something we really ought to do without So we can dwell on the child that died a totally unnecessary death today. We can dwell upon the woman who we helped as, or we can dwell, he says, on the woman that we helped as she struggled to push her overloaded shopping cart to her car. You can think about the woman that was raped in Paris yesterday, or you can think about the old guy in your neighborhood who talked to you out of loneliness, and you put off your super massively important trip to the pharmacy for 20 minutes. You can think about the way he smiled and laughed and how he patted you on the shoulder because he wanted to say thank you for taking the time. You have power to affect real change in this world. Some things you won't be able to change, and that's a tragedy. Perhaps someday you'll be in the right place at the right time and you'll save a woman from a predator or a baby from being left alone to die in a car. Always, always deliberately check the cars you walk past in the parking lot on a hot day. But he says that kind of helping is glamour helping. You're just as much a hero when you give someone a little of your time, your attention, your patience, and your kindness. He says, as my mother learned when she died the first time, she had a near-death experience, which, by the way, was just incredible. Literally every single thing you do matters, and to an extent, you won't truly fathom until you die. Then he says God will lovingly hammer you to your very freaking soul with it times a 100 so his point is, it's not enough just to live. We have to live well together. I don't know about you. Maybe I'm the only person who really needed to hear that, but, man, I needed that message. I needed that reminder that, well, we want to know about what's going on, and yes, I'm an information junkie. I have to, come on, come on, tell me. What's happening? What's happening, man? You heard any heard any tips? Heard any good news? Anything happening? You know, is a new world order instituted. yet? Whatever, you know, I'm... It, it can it can take any number of forms, but let's not get so caught up in knowing all the bad stuff and the horrible things that people are doing to one another or saying about one another to the point that we forget those little instances of kindness that we can do and participate in right where we happen to be standing. I like how he put it, you know, the, the whole glamour Help. Yeah, you don't You don't need to glamour help people. You don't need recognition. You shouldn't be front-page news because, well, I let somebody merge in traffic, you know. That was pretty big of me, wasn't it? <laughs> I mean, sometimes it feels like that was a pretty big thing. But I think the idea here is how are you living your life? Not only so that you're not a burden on the people around you, but that maybe in some cases, either uh, on purpose or accidentally you manage to lift someone who needs to be lifted. I think that's uh, something worth seeking out on a daily basis.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Okay, so I felt really good sharing that... uh, that piece from Jack Cameron about uh, just simply spreading a little bit of light where you happen to be standing, lest uh, we we choose to go where the despair is all the time. And I don't want you to think now I'm going to throw all that away and tell you about the really bad stuff that's going on, but I do have a couple of things I wanted to point out. And, and this one I just found interesting, primarily from a literary standpoint, but also because, I don't know about you, but I think a person could be forgiven for... Wondering if we're living in George Orwell's novel 1984. Now, I graduated high school in 1984, and so it was kind of cool when we had to read that as part of our curriculum, and I believe the uh, high school put on a play. We put on, you know, the, a performance of Orwell's 1984, and yeah, it was uh, it was a pretty intense story, although I look at it much differently down the road than I did at the time. I mean, at the time, it was like, yeah, you know, there's problems out there, but... You know, this could never happen, especially in America. Now, keep in mind, you know, when I graduated high school, Reagan was president. It's just, you know, he just got elected to his second term. And, you know, it's uh, basically, you know, the only place where you would find a 1984-like existence was probably somewhere in the Soviet Union, back behind the Iron Curtain. Never in our wildest dreams did we think something like that could happen here. And yet the Berlin Wall fell just five years later, 1989. A couple of years after that, the Iron Curtain came down. And ever since that time, it's been so curious to see how this nation, which was, you know, America was once this beacon of liberty and has since been distancing itself. Not that everybody wants to, but it seems like the people who hold power have made a very concerted effort to do so. And it's probably part of a process that's been going on since well before 1984. Nevertheless, let me get to the point here. John Miltimore, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education, has a marvelous article. This was uh, published last year. Three real-life inspirations for George Orwell's 1984. More than 70 years after its 1948 publication, Orwell's masterpiece remains one of the most relevant novels in the world. He says, British literary critic V.S. Pritchett could have been speaking for many in his review for the New Statesman, saying, I do not think I have ever read a novel more frightening and depressing. And yet, such are the originality, the suspense, the speed of writing, and withering indignation that it is impossible to put the book down. More than 70 years after its 1948 publication, Orwell's masterpiece routinely tops Amazon's list of overall best-selling books. In January 2017, Penguin Random House ordered 75,000 new copies of 1984, following a 95%, 9,500% spike in sales, according to the New York Times. Kind of makes you wonder what happened in 2017. Oh, wait, that's when Trump became president. Anyway, today it's not unusual to find influencers on both the right and the left uh, to see them invoking Orwell's book to decry the actions taken against them or to attack political opponents in 2021 conservative u.s. senator josh hawley said simon and schuster's decision to cancel his book deal could not be more orwellian while left-leaning media consistently claimed that former president donald trump was big brother personified now john miltimore says some parallels to 1984 we see today are downright chilling while others seem silly the question is how does one separate breathless hyperbole from genuine threats So to answer that, he says it's helpful to look at the inspirations for Orwell's book, a terrifying allegory detailing one man's attempt to stay sane in a totalitarian state that tortures the truth and people to control society. So here are three real-life inspirations for Orwell's dystopian novel. Number one, you knew this was coming, communism. Many people know that Orwell was a socialist for many years. Fewer know that Orwell became skeptical of collectivism, which he came to see as not inherently democratic, but on the contrary, gives to a tyrannical minority such powers as the Spanish inquisitors never dreamed of. This is why there's general agreement that Orwell modeled the totalitarian government in the novel after Stalinist Russia and Nazi Germany, two collectivist states hostile to private property and economic freedom. While some may quibble over to which degree these states were communist, socialist, fascist, What's important to understand is that Orwell was modeling his dystopia on socialist states, particularly communist ones. Orwell himself makes this perfectly clear in a letter he wrote to Sidney Sheldon, the man who purchased the stage rights to 1984. 1984 was based chiefly on communism because that is the dominant form of totalitarianism, Orwell replied to Mr. Sheldon. But I was trying chiefly to imagine what communism would be like if it were firmly rooted in the English-speaking countries and was no longer a mere extension of the Russian foreign office. Okay, number two influence was We, a novel by Yevgeny Zamyatin. Now, few people have ever heard of We, a piece of dystopian fiction that never gained the traction of 1984. But it's clear the book influenced Orwell, who reviewed the work after the death of its author, Yevgeny Zamyatin. Born in Lebedyan, Russia in 1884, Zamyatin was an enthusiastic socialist who became a member of the Bolshevik Party and participated in the Russian Revolution of 1905. Following the October Revolution, which he witnessed firsthand after returning from England, Zamyatin threw himself headlong into party work, sitting on the boards of literary organizations and offering lectures on the craft of fiction. That's according to Russian literary scholar Jennifer Wilson in the New York Times. In 1920 to 1921, Zamyatin wrote We, a dystopian novel set a thousand years in the future which explores the pressure to conform in an an authoritarian society that has become fully, fully rather, bureaucratized. We struck a nerve in the Soviet Union, and not in a good way. The book quickly fell under the eye of literary censors who banned the novel prior to publication, despite Zamyatin's party enthusiasm making it the first novel officially banned in the Soviet Union, according to Wilson. The book was not published until 1924, when the bookhouse E.P. Dutton published an English translation, rather, and Orwell would not review it until more than 20 years later. Now, the extent to which We influenced 1984 is debatable, but The Guardian points out many similarities between the books. For instance, the characters in We are numbered rather than named. Winston Smith in that book is D-503, Julia is I-330. Its big brother is known as the Benefactor, a more human figure than Orwell's almost mythical dictator who at one point phones D-503. D-503? Ah, you're speaking to the Benefactor. Report to me immediately. Where Orwell's apartments come complete with an all-seeing telescreen, Zamyatin's buildings are simply made of glass, allowing each of the residents and the guardians who police them to see in whenever they want. We's Airstrip One, or Oceania, is called One State. Instead of puzzling over 2 plus 2 equals 5, its lead character is disturbed by the square root of negative 1. Now, readers can determine for themselves how much they think We influenced 1984, but what's clear is that Orwell read the book, was influenced by it, and would see his own dystopian novel published just two years after he reviewed Zemyatin's work. The third influence was the Spanish Civil War's propaganda. And perhaps the greatest single theme of 1984 is the idea of totalitarians attempting to control speech to shape reality. Throughout his life and career, Orwell was motivated by a desire to remain attached to truth, and his experience in the Spanish Civil War shook him deeply. During that conflict, a war involving fascists against communists, Orwell witnessed war propaganda and its corrosive impact on the truth in English newspapers. He said, I saw newspaper reports which did not bear any relation to the facts, not even the relationship which is implied in an ordinary lie. I saw great battles reported where there had been no fighting and complete silence where hundreds of men had been killed. I saw troops who had fought bravely denounced as cowards, cowards rather, and traitors and others who had never seen a shot fired hailed as heroes of the imaginary victories. And I saw newspapers in London retailing these lies in eager intellectuals building emotional superstructures over events that never happened. This led him to say that the very concept of objective truth is fading out in the world. So that's something to think about if you have the time or inclination to pick up 1984 and, uh, you know, indulge in a little bit of dystopian literature. I still say it's kind of fun sometimes to pick that book up and to just see some of the different parallels. Not that, oh, really, it's as bad as, you know, (laughs) Of Winston Smith's life, but just simply to recognize hey, Orwell had a point to make here, and I choose to remain tethered to reality.
0: This This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian
1: Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Okay, I'm going to go a little bit deeper into some uh, fairly sensitive material here. I say sensitive from the standpoint of this is probably not going to leave you with that sense of warm fuzzies that uh, other topics might. So we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the globalists attempting to introduce a digital currency system. And I got to preface this with the understanding that um, I think a lot of us are feeling the, the pinch right now. Economically, all is not well. And while I think most of us are scraping by, look, I consider myself very blessed, but uh, I, feel, I feel the pinch every time I stand at the gas pump. I'm like, man, whew, things are expensive every time I go to the grocery store. Actually, I'll tell you when I really feel this, when I take my mom to the grocery store, because more and more she's, she is more shut in. She has difficulty getting around on her own. And uh, when I take her to the grocery store, she's always been a pretty frugal individual. But uh, she gets the full sticker shock when she sees how much things cost because she doesn't get out there very often. And, and I can guarantee if it's only been a few weeks or a month, she still will recognize, holy cow, that is that much more expensive? You know, when you're going a couple times a week, you don't notice it as much. But nevertheless, Brandon Smith writing for alt-market.us has, write, has written about the, uh, the reset when will the globalists attempt to introduce their digital currency system? I strongly recommend you take a look at what Brandon Smith has to say. This this young man makes a great deal of sense. And and I know this is, you know, for some people, well, here we go, off into tinfoil hat territory. But I want you to think about this just logically for a moment, or at least what I, I consider this to be a pretty rational way to approach this. The people who pushed the lockdowns, the mandates, all of the the disruptions that came along with the COVID pandemic. More and more, it's becoming clear that they did this out of a sense of we've got to consolidate or at the very least, if we want to make it a little more innocent, maintain control of the situation. Well, if they are that interested in control, then it absolutely makes sense that one of the greatest things they could do to control the people, the, the underlings like us, is to implement some kind of a currency which is 100% within their control, meaning no exchange takes place. Nothing you earn, nothing you spend is uh, your private business. You can be taxed at will. You can have money discounted or uh, rather confiscated from your bank account at will. That kind of stuff offsets, you know, some of the convenience of the digital currency. Brandon Smith says, I want you to imagine for a moment a future world in which everything we know about functioning and surviving within the economy is completely upended. The world has gone, compl- has gone fully digital, meaning people live within a cashless society where physical monetary interactions are abandoned or prohibited, replaced by central bank digital currencies, or CBDCs. All transactions are tracked and traced. Nothing is private any longer unless you're operating as a criminal within a black market. Now, by extension, production is overtly suppressed and micromanaged, Small businesses are a thing of the past, and only a select group of major corporations working directly with government are allowed to operate. It's not just that cash is outlawed and that everyone must rely on a digital ledger. The very data pathways and networks that we use to transfer funds are also controlled. Much like the SWIFT data network, the globalists have the ability to lock down Internet payments, individual accounts and business accounts, and deny people the ability to move funds from one place to another. In the meantime, AI-based monitoring systems sift through millions of transactions every minute, searching for anomalies. The algorithm is designed to identify anyone who has found a way around the data tracking. People who want to remain anonymous. So the Internet still exists, he says, but it's a shell of its former glory. The population uses it regularly to complete necessary tasks and to research information, but data providers are severely restricted. Cryptocurrencies are not an option as an alternative to the CBDCs because trading them online immediately sets off red flags for the AI in the sky. Only government-approved websites are allowed to exist, with extensive rules limiting what they can do and what they can say. AI chatbots provide the public with most of their information, and the globalists control the parameters of the chatbots. People only ever hear the news that the elites want them to hear. All contrary data is eliminated. It's not so much banned, rather it is simply omitted from the record until the people who remember it are long gone. Now, Brandon Smith says this may all sound like science fiction, but all of this technology already exists and is being tested by globalist institutions, including the Bank for International Settlements and the International Monetary Fund. I know, that chill that just went up your spine, I got it too. Not long ago, he says, during the COVID pandemic scare, organizations like the World Economic Forum began widely promoting a concept called the Great Reset. It was an agenda sometimes whispered about in banker conferences as far back as 15 years ago. But now the Great Reset was being promoted openly in the media and at Davos. It's a new economic paradigm. A revolution in which AI runs everything, humanity is relegated to a limited number of vital jobs, and a brand and a new brand rather of technological socialism rules our lives. Private property would be cast aside, and the populace would live day to day within a shared economy in which no one owns anything, and everything is borrowed from the collective system. The reset, or the fourth industrial revolution as they sometimes call it, would be the start of a new terrifying age of feudalism. It's a return to the oligarch and peasant model, a return to enslavement. The average person would only be allowed to work as a means to survive, never to accumulate wealth for the future. And each peasant's survival would be utterly dependent on their access to the system, which could be taken away with the push of a button. The primary stepping stone to this dystopian nightmare would be a global digital currency system. Without a cashless society, The globalists would have no power to enforce the other elements of their reset. But when and how will they implement this monstrosity? And why would anyone embrace it? Brandon Smith says globalists tend to operate in stages of incrementalism, but sometimes they exploit dramatic crisis events in order to frighten the population into compliance with policies that would have taken decades to institute otherwise. We saw this clearly with the pandemic. Most of the reset concepts were revealed to the public during this time, perhaps because the globalists thought they had it in the bag, and there was nothing anyone could do to stop them. This even included consistent talk of cashless systems to prevent the spread of COVID on physical dollars. But COVID, with its tiny infection fatality rate, failed to frighten people enough. The opportunity fell apart. Today, the question is, when will they try it again? He says most globalist organizations consistently mention the year 2030 as their timeline for finishing the numerous projects they have in place, including the Great Reset, along with multiple carbon and climate taxation goals. The WEF calls it a social contract to transform our world by 2030. The U.N. simply calls it Agenda 2030. This means the establishment wants to have their control grid in place within seven years or less. Now, that would be impossible without a bone-rattling crisis of epic proportions. But first, they would have to introduce a number of future mechanisms as a trial run. That way, when disaster does occur, the public will be acclimated to the solutions that the elites will ask them to adopt later. Now, in the case of digital currencies, crypto has already received wide exposure in the popular media. Most people don't own crypto and hardly anyone uses it, but they've all heard of it. CBDCs will likely ride the crypto wave and will be presented as a safer, more stable crypto option. Now, for now, Australia seems to be the primary guinea pig for fielding CBDCs to a large Western population. Their pilot programs are set to finish this summer and international transactions have been accomplished using the EAUD unit though they have not revealed when they might introduce the currency to forex markets or the citizenry. But the point is, the system exists and can be copied and adopted by other nations. At bottom, he says, globalists know that countries like America will not accept a fully cashless system without a complete collapse of their existing currency and economy. It's just not going to happen otherwise. And Brandon says, I have doubts that many Americans will accept such such a system even after such a collapse. The majority of Americans, 59%, say they like to have cash with them for various purchases. Now, though Western consumers make payments more often with bank cards, they still enjoy having physical money when they want it. The implications of intricate digital surveillance of every single purchase and transfer of funds is not lost on a large portion of the population. People know that if they give the government a telescope into their wallets, that eventually that information will be used against them. Take away the option of anonymity, and millions of people will resist, even if they have nothing in particular to hide. He says conversion to a cashless system would require calamity and force, a full-spectrum crisis throughout the U.S. and much of the Western world in the next few years, along with another few years or more of reconstruction to bring in those CBDC mechanisms. Now get this, small businesses would have to be removed from the picture, leaving only major corporations which could then refuse to accept cash as a means of payment from consumers. That would be one method of expediting the cashless system, along with outright government confiscation of physical paper. I don't know about you, but precious metals are starting to look a little more attractive. And no, I have no intention of participating in such a system.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Here's an invitation to consider subscribing to my show notes, which I publish each day that I do this program. And they're nothing special. I do try to find some pretty funny and sick memes to share with each edition of the show notes. Maybe you'll laugh, maybe you won't, but... My goal is to just put out there some good information that's thought-provoking, hopefully enlightening and empowering, and above all, leaves you feeling better informed, more certain about who you are and what you stand for than simply what is upsetting to you or what is more evidence of how the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Now, having said that, let me just share this latest article from, uh, this is from Lenore Skenazy. I mean, look, public safety is a very well-intended goal, but hopefully we can all agree, you know, it can be taken too far. Case in point, Lenore Scanese has this wonderful article. This is from intellectualtakeout.org. Cops telling parents how to raise their kids. She says at last it was the big day for Tom D's daughter, age six, the day she would walk to get a Gatorade all by herself. She wouldn't have to cross any big streets, and her parents made sure she was well-equipped. They gave her some money, her mom's phone so she could be tracked, and a hand-drawn map, even though the store was just a few blocks away. Now, this was a Detroit suburb. Dad Tom has asked that his last name not be used for fear of retribution from the cops because the cops were indeed called. No sooner had the girl turned onto the larger road where the store is located than an older man stopped her and summoned the police. Tom was tracking his, doctor, his daughter, rather, and he, when he saw that she wasn't budging, he went out to see what was going on, and as he arrived, so did two cops. They asked me what I was letting her do, and I said, well, I'm letting her walk to get a Gatorade. They asked me her age, and I told them, Tom recalls, The police said, she's not old enough. And I remember thinking, that's your personal belief. You don't know my kid at all. But I also remember thinking, I need to tone myself down. Well, his prudence paid off. The cop said, we don't want to bring child protective services into this, indicating that they certainly could if pushed. So Tom gave them his name and identification and promised, I'll make sure she's inside our house going forward. And that's what he and his wife have done. They've changed their parenting, not due to actual danger, but to other people's perceptions. And this, in turn, has changed their daughter. After the thwarted walk, she wanted to try again almost immediately, says Tom. But we did not allow her to because if she tries again and they find her again, they're definitely calling Child Protective Services on us. The spunky little girl asked a few more times, and then she stopped asking. And her parents changed, too. Tom says, we were both for the idea of the walk before anything happened, and afterward it was like, well, let's just be a little more cautious. And Lenore Skenazy says, more cautious. They prepared their daughter with a map, with money, a phone. How excessively cautious must a parent be? She says, this is why I never blame parents for, for helicoptering. Our culture insists that we do it. And yet, as childhood independence has dwindled, childhood anxiety and depression have shot up. This is no coincidence. But listen to her point. The way anyone gets over any fear... Is by facing it, by doing the daunting thing. Now, by contrast, if you want to feed anxiety, just treat a competent person as not competent, warn them that everything's dangerous, stop them from doing things they could handle—a walk to the store, for instance. Until we change our laws and norms, decent parents who want to nurture their children's growing capabilities will be forced to smother them instead. And Lenore Ganezy says that's not safety; that's a tragedy. A child who's excited to be part of the world shouldn't be locked inside until she finally stops even asking to go out. I mean, look, how different is the world from the one we grew up in? There were risks. There always have been. I mean, my mom had me and my friends walk into school. Now we walk together, our friends, you know, but at five years old. We were pretty free to uh, get out there and walk to and from school. I do remember getting in trouble if I didn't come home promptly from school. I think it must have been about second grade, probably, maybe it was first grade. Six or seven years old, I decided to take a detour unannounced and go hang out with my friend Matt for for the afternoon. Yeah, Mom was not very happy. I think she was less happy, though, with the fact that I brought home a copy of uh, Matt's brother's uh, National Lampoon. I thought the cartoons were funny. My parents were like, this is way too adult for a six-year-old to be reading. and they, They were probably right. But you know, the funny thing is at age eight, I don't know why, but that in our family, that was, you know, at eight years old, the rite of passage was you get a bike for your birthday. By the way, mine was a very cool metallic red Schwinn Stingray. Holy cow, that was a beautiful bike. Then on my eighth birthday, I walked into the living room. Boom, there it was. Now, my parents insisted that my sisters and I take bike safety. We saw the horrific cartoons of little kids getting run over by trucks and bounced off of car hoods and stuff like that because they didn't pay attention, you know, when they were, you know, riding their bikes. And, you know, it left an impression. And I, I, for the most part, was a pretty safe rider. But from that point on, from about age eight on, we were free to go explore our neighborhood I grew up in Salt Lake City. I grew up on the East Bench and, you know, over in, in Holiday. And um, I don't know what my range was, but I was pretty much free to explore anywhere in our residential neighborhood. I kind of steered clear of the busier streets simply because there was a lot of traffic and I didn't want to have to deal with it. But I don't remember ever the police being called because, oh, there's kids out here riding bikes. See, I don't think human nature has changed one bit. But I do think that our attitudes sometimes shift with time. And in this case, I think Lenore Skenazy is calling out uh, what what really is a tragedy. We see so much risk in the world around us, that, and we're so risk-averse, we're willing to take away not just our own freedoms but our kids' freedoms and, and to refuse to let them develop and learn in ways that would actually build confidence and strength and, and surety that, yes, I can do this. Because of fear of what might happen. And, and behind that fear, at least at some level, is, well, somebody might call the cops. I don't want, don't want that. We don't want to have to deal with child protective services. Which kind of leads me to ask, okay, so where, where did the common sense go? I'm just not sure. All right. One other article I would like to bring to your attention. This is also is in today's show notes. This is from Zero Hedge. Pro-COVID mandate scientists use the expert fallacy to avoid fair debate. Dr. Peter Hotez, by the way, is a great example of this. If there's one thing the COVID lockdown event has shown with extreme clarity, it's that a large number of people within the scientific community are easily swayed or easily bought when it comes to government narratives. The level of false information spread by numerous medical and scientific professionals over the course of the past few years has been staggering. This article says they've been proven wrong on almost every significant risk factor from the effectiveness of masks to the effectiveness of lockdowns and even the effectiveness of the COVID vaccines. Now, one could argue whether or not they were aware at the time they were wrong, but the fact remains that a large number of them refuse to this day to admit fault. They continue to insist that they were right, despite all evidence to the contrary. And the issue of denial among the COVID devout has been brought to the forefront once again with recent media attacks against Joe Rogan and his podcast featuring Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who, by the way, is running as a candidate in the Democratic primaries in 2024. Now, RFK is a well-known skeptic of COVID mandate policies and an outspoken critic of the unchecked emergency vaccine rollout. The questions he presents, the arguments he makes, are very similar to those the alternative media were pressing from the very beginning of the pandemic. But as a presidential hopeful, RFK garners a level of public recognition that apparently is frightening to the establishment. The corporate media has engaged in a coordinated assault on Kennedy, demanding that his interview with Joe Rogan be censored by Spotify, as well as social media platforms on the grounds that he was spreading dangerous medical misinformation. Avid cultists, uh, COVID cultists, including a doctor and well-known defender of Big Pharma by the name of Peter Hotez, piled on the bandwagon, dismissing RFK's information and making the usual accusations of conspiracy theory. Now, in return, Joe Rogan suggested if Hotes was so confident that RFK was misinforming the public, then he should be willing to debate the issue properly and openly. In exchange, Rogan would donate $100,000 to the charity of Hotes's choice. The response by Hotez is typical of people that aggressively support COVID mandates and vaccine requirements. He ran away. Since then, Hotez and the media have become informed in a, engaged rather in a form of gaslighting in order to deflect away from the debate, suggesting that he's come under attack because people have dared to ask him questions. That's the classic response of the pro-mandate crowd. Throw as many hatchets as possible at anyone who strays from the government and Big Pharma narrative, all from the safety of their laptops and the corporate media megaphone. And then play the victim when they're challenged and create a circus to distract from the fact that they were the original attackers. This is an excellent article, by the way, and uh, it, it really brings out the fact that when a scientist is afraid to argue the fact, especially with people, that they're willing to publicly admonish, that suggests that they're acting on ideological biases and avoiding fair scrutiny of those biases. It suggests that they are not real scientists. And I would say it also suggests that they're not acting in good faith. So you got to make up your own mind on this. I would think that uh, more information would be better than less information when it comes to doing that. Or do you believe you're as stupid as some people are trying to tell you? This is The Brian Hyde Show.